Welcome to our newest Hearts Unite the Globe hug patrons. Annie Olchek, we sincerely appreciate your support. Thank you for joining our community and making a difference through Patreon. Judy Miller, thank you for being our first Buzzsprout supporter for Bereave But Still Me. Buzzsprout started a new program where you can actually support the podcast of your choice. There are so many ways you can support Hug. All you have to do is visit our website, heartsunitetheglobe.com, to see how you too can help empower, educate, and enrich the lives of individuals in the CHD and bereaved communities. Thank you all for your continued support. I think one thing that's been interesting that sort of emerged from this is there are so many little things where people talk to me and I go, oh my gosh, that exact thing happened to me, or I know exactly what you're talking about. is Lee Camping Carter? What are the heart dialogues? Where can someone access the heart dialogues? Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna. I am Anna Jaworski and your host. I'm also a heart mom to an adult who was born with a single ventricle heart and is 28 years old. That's the reason I am the host of your podcast. Today's episode is called Lee Camping Carter and the Heart Dialogues. And our guest is Lee Camping Carter. Lee Camping Carter is the founder and writer of The Heart Dialogues, a free newsletter featuring candid conversations and information for people living with congenital heart conditions. The link to the newsletter will be in the show notes, which is the description of the show. While a few groups are doing critical work to raise awareness about congenital heart conditions, and conduct medical research and increase access to care, not many places exist for people with congenital heart conditions to share their experiences and questions and feel less weird. Lee started the Heart Dialogues to be one of those places, a space where we can explore all the different ways that congenital heart conditions affects our lives, for better and for worse. As a professional journalist working at one of the country's top newspapers, she is drawing on her nearly 15 years of experience as a reporter, editor, and the head of newsletters to bring CHD-related stories and information to life. Leah is 38 years old and was born and raised in Toronto, Canada. For more than 30 years, she received cardiology care in a healthcare system very different from the one in the United States. She moved to Brooklyn about 15 years ago and about six years ago, transferred her care to New York. She's experienced two different approaches to cardiology, but unlike so many CHD kids, she has never fallen out of care, which I find remarkable. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna, Lee Camping Carter. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to talk to you, Lee. Not all of my guests know about your heart condition. So can you tell us a little bit more about your cardiac condition and whether or not you've had surgery for it? Yeah. So I was born with a complex heart defect called tricuspid atresia, which is a single ventricle defect where basically the tricuspid valve doesn't form correctly. And that's the valve on the right side of the heart between the upper and lower chambers. So I was diagnosed shortly after birth. And I had a shunt when I was about nine months old, another shunt when I was two years old, and then I had the Fontan when I was almost four in 1988. And then I had corrective plastic surgery for one of my scars 
when I was eight years old. And wow. since then, there's been a couple small things here and there, but no other operations. So no other open heart procedures. Yeah, just the one open heart, just the Fontan. Oh, my goodness. But that was so much. Oh, so your shunts were not done open heart? Correct. Yeah. Oh, wow. Right. I'm just curious because I've seen people before who have a scar oh. under their back of their shoulder blade where sometimes they've had surgeries done that way. And of course, there's a midline scar that some people have. How did they do the shunt? Was that actually in a cath lab? No, it was a surgery on my right side. So yes, I have one of those scars on my okay. back side. Okay. Wow. I'm so impressed that you've gone through all of this medical trauma because let's face it, when you put your body through all of those different procedures, it's medical trauma. And yet here you are trying to normalize things for other people who have been through the same trauma that you have. So kudos to you. I have really enjoyed looking at the newsletters that you've put out already. I read from top to bottom the one with Tracy, who was on my show before. I really enjoyed that. And I learned new things, even though she's been on my show twice. So that was really cool. I found it interesting that you've received care both in Toronto and in the United States. So tell me some of the differences that you noticed in care as an adult with a cardiac condition, first in Canada and then in the U.S. I was lucky enough to grow up in Toronto, which is a big city and has lots of really great medical care and in fact has one of the world's best centers for pediatric cardiology. So I think there's a couple big differences. I had my care in Toronto until, I guess, about six years ago when I transferred it to New York, which is also a big city that also has really good medical care. So the care was top-notch in both places. And this is, of course, only my own personal experience. But one big thing, of course, that's different is that we have a universal health care in Canada. We never paid a bill. There was no in-network or out-of-network. There was no paperwork or bureaucracy. It was really just you go to the hospital and you get care. And obviously that was an adjustment coming to New York and realizing like, oh, there, this is like our part-time job. <laughs> and then I think beyond that, what I have experienced, and this is certainly not necessarily the case for everyone, but I think there's a bit of a different philosophy. So for my care in Toronto... I think the approach was always, let's not do anything if we don't have to. So if you don't have to take this medication, we won't give this to you. If we don't have to do this procedure yet, let's not quite do it. Let's hold off. And then when I came to New York, the philosophy was the opposite, where if we have a medication, let's give it to you. If we have this procedure, let's do it as soon as possible. And I think there's probably pros and cons to both approaches, but I think that was an adjustment, oh, much more medicalized sure. here being in New York. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure there was a huge adjustment for you. So did they ask you or tell you that they wanted to put you on new medicine that you hadn't been on before? I have wound up going on several medications, partly because of health issues that have cropped up in the last six years unrelated right, to being right. in New York. But yeah, but I would say like my cardiologist definitely has an attitude where if there's some solid research that shows, hey, this might help, it's definitely let's get you on this. Let's try this. Or if there's a procedure that, hey, we could put it off for a year or we could do it now, 
the attitude is much more, let's do it now. Yeah. I find that fascinating that there are those different philosophies. And I wonder if there have been any studies, because it seems like there are always studies on everything, but I've never looked for this. I wonder if there are any studies that compare how adults in a CHC community do when they have a more laissez-faire attitude versus a more aggressive attitude. And the problem is every human is so different that it's really hard to compare. I don't even know if you really could do a good comparison unless you just see certain across the board. Oh, this one population, they tend to have more congestive heart failure or something like that. I don't know. I don't even know what exactly what you would look for. Yeah. I think it's also hard to say exactly what better would mean. Like I really appreciated when I was in my teens or twenties that my cardiologist, there was always talk of, should she go on blood thinners? Should she go on blood thinners? And for me, I never wanted to, because I never wanted to feel like a patient. I didn't want to feel sick. I didn't want to have to take medication. That is how my heart warrior was. Exactly. My kid fell out of care. And I wonder if maybe there had been a more laissez-faire attitude. Maybe she wouldn't have fallen out of care. But she got sick and tired of all the medicine that she had to take and all the tests and being seen by cardiology every six months, even when she felt well. So she just quit going when she didn't have mom dragging her up there. (laughs) I wonder... If maybe she had been only seen once a year instead of twice a year, and they hadn't been running quite as many tests, and they didn't demand her to take quite as many medications, if maybe she would have been more compliant. I don't know. She's still my kid, so there's no I think telling. it's hard to say, and I don't know if I would use the word laissez-faire. I think it was really top quality care. I did have a oh, lot of Oh, I don't mean tests. any disrespect. Um, I don't mean any yeah, disrespect. No. I just mean le- more laid back. I assume laissez-faire yeah. was more laid back, not as opposed to a more aggressive approach, which I feel like many of the hospitals here in the U.S. are much more aggressive. And that has a really negative connotation. I don't mean that in a negative way either. I just mean that they're more apt to try new things. But once you're an adult, you could do what my kid did. And you can say no. Like my child's cardiologist decided that she needed a pacemaker. And my daughter did not believe she needed a pacemaker. She did her own research and found out that one of the new drugs that they put her on, one of the side effects could be arrhythmias. And so she met with an electrophysiologist and said, I don't think I need a pacemaker until we determine whether or not this new drug I'm on is what's actually causing the problem. And thankfully, the electrophysiologist agreed with her and come to find out, yes, indeed, it was that drug that was causing the arrhythmias. And now she doesn't have those arrhythmias and she doesn't have a pacemaker. So I think it's really important to be able to be assertive for yourself and to do your own research. And that's one of the things I like about the heart dialogues is that you're talking to people about their own specific conditions and their own specific journey. And you were really detailed with the one newsletter that I read. You really went into a lot of detail with Tracy and asked her a lot of questions. And because she felt really safe with you, Lee, she really opened up to you and 
shared a lot of information. I think one of the problems for heart warriors is it's hard to find anyone else just like you. It's hard to find anyone else who's gone through exactly what you've gone through. And even with these dialogues, Tracy didn't go through exactly the same thing you did, but just by having that conversation, it gives you a chance to hear somebody else's story. And then if you start to experience something that you've read somebody else has experienced, maybe you know some of the possible consequences or at least some of the jargon and terminology to use when you talk to your doctor. Yeah, I've been really lucky that when it's been really open and candid with me, and I feel very lucky to the people that I've interviewed for being that way. I think one thing that's been interesting that sort of emerged from this is there are so many little things where people talk to me and I go, oh my gosh, that exact thing happened to me, or I know exactly what you're talking about. And I've never had anyone in my life where that's been true. I think it's also interesting that there's as much where it's, oh, that experience is very different from mine. You people who've had more interventions or fewer interventions, we call this congenital heart disease or congenital heart conditions, but that encompasses such a wide array of defects and experiences and severity and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's been equally rewarding to hear the stuff that feels really familiar and the stuff that feels really different. Night Forever by the Baby Blue Sound Collective. I think what I love so much about this CD is that some of the songs were inspired by the patients. Many listeners will understand many of the different songs and what they've been inspired by. Our new album will be available on iTunes, Amazon.com, Spotify. I love the fact that the proceeds from this CD are actually going to help those with congenital heart defects. Enjoy the music. Home Tonight Forever. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The opinions expressed in the podcast are not those of Hearts Unite the Globe, but of the hosts and guests, and are intended to spark discussion about issues pertaining to congenital heart disease or bereavement. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Anna. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our show, please send an email to Anna Jaworski at Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. That's Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. Now, back to Heart to Heart with Anna. Lee, before the break, we were talking about your cardiac condition and It sounds like you've been very careful with your care because you've never fallen out of care, but I'm sure that doesn't mean you haven't struggled because you just told me that you've had four procedures. That's a lot of procedures to have to undergo, plus additional procedures that were not cardiac. Tell me why you started the Heart Dialogues. I think there's a couple of different things. So I really started getting more involved with the congenital heart community probably two or three years ago. And I think there's some really fantastic groups out there that are raising awareness, that are doing medical research, that are doing advocacy work in D.C. Every time I would be in a webinar or a conference or a fundraising event, people would talk about what we really want is community. I found also that a lot of the time, the conversations that people would have would just really be 
focused a lot on the medical staff. So when people introduced themselves, it was, hi, I'm Lee and I have tricuspid atresia. These are the surgeries I had. And that's how we would relate to each other. And I felt, of course, all of that is very important. All stuff we need to talk about. <laughs> but also there are so many other things that are involved with having a congenital heart condition and even just having an illness since birth. There's things like having scars, how to talk to your boss about having a bunch of doctor's appointments, yes. how your parents deal with your care. For some people, they're very involved. For some people, they're not. So it just seemed like there was a lot of other stuff out there that we could be talking about. And then I think for me, I'm a journalist. I've been a journalist for many years. And I've worked in newsletters in my job for many years. And I really gravitated toward that medium. I subscribed to a lot of newsletters. I love newsletters. <laughs> and it felt like there wasn't really something out there that was a newsletter where you didn't necessarily have to be part of a conversation or log into Facebook, that there was something that could come to your inbox a couple times a month that you could read at your leisure, digest and think about. So I felt like there was an opening there for me to bring my skills from my work life and my passion for this community or this subject and kind of put them together for the heart dialogues. I love it. I love it. And I think you're absolutely right. And to be totally honest with you, Lee, even if there were another newsletter out there, there's room for two. There's room That's for true. three or four or five. Really? <laughs> exactly. Because exactly. there are so many stories that need to be told. Yeah. And you can't tell everything in one newsletter. We have multiple podcasts now, which is so exciting to me that there are right. multiple opportunities for people to go on the air and do this audibly. Not everybody likes to listen to things. Some people are more visual learners or they prefer to look on their phone and read while they're on the train or something like that. And so that's where the newsletter comes in really handy. So as I mentioned earlier, I really enjoyed your issue with Tracy Lavecki because she had been on my show before and I just find her fascinating. I was so impressed with how in-depth your interview with her was because I think that would have taken longer than the 30 minutes to an hour I usually spend <laughs> with people putting together my podcast. So can you take us through the process that you go through to create your newsletter? Yeah. So these interviews, at least so far, have all been phone conversations. We've talked for a range from 40 minutes to 60 plus minutes. And I usually go in, I try and do as much research on the person as I can. I do the cyber stalking of them, but not in a creepy way. I promise. Not in a creepy way. <laughs> I want to go in as prepared as I can be. I usually have a general list of questions that I would like to get into, some of which are unique to the person, some of which are things that I ask everyone. But we also let the conversations just go where they will. And I think every time I've been surprised by where they go. Cool. And I also try and make sure I ask some very personal questions. You did, even about her <laughs> childhood. And I thought yes. that was really telling. I really enjoyed reading that because that's not something that normally gets discussed. You did a really good job with that. That makes me very happy to hear. But I also preface every interview by telling people that I do have personal questions, but you don't have to answer them. And if it's uncomfortable, you don't have to go there. 
I do want people to feel really safe and protected. I'm not out to make them look silly or anything like that. I think it's really just about having an honest conversation and talking about all the good things and all the bad things and getting as deep as you can possibly go. Yeah, I think you do an excellent job. I can definitely see that you've had training in that area. But I also think just from what I've read and the limited conversations I've had with you already, you're a very empathetic person. You come across as somebody who's very trustworthy and that you care about how other people feel. Good. I think that was <laughs> That's I, good for a I'm reporter. <laughs> also, like, it's true. I do really care. I do yeah, care. About it comes through. Talking to, so. You feel well, like I a do. very authentic person and that you're in touch with the deeper part of yourself. I hate to say this, but I feel like a lot of people are superficial and they're not really looking deep within. They're not introspective. You strike me as the kind of person who's much more introspective and you're interested in other people's experiences and you don't mind listening and taking in what their contrasting experiences have been. So I just really find it fascinating and I think you're the right person for the job. I think you came up with the right medium for you and you do an excellent job. Thank you so much. You're very welcome, my dear. No one can see this, but I'm blushing. (laughs) (laughs) I can see and you're just adorable. So tell me how you decide who you're going to feature in your newsletter, because as I said, there are a lot of people out there and I find it challenging with me, even with the podcast, who am I going to select? A lot of times I'm in a lot of different groups on Facebook and people will start talking about something and I'll think, oh my gosh, I haven't covered that on my podcast yet. And I'll reach out to one of those people to see if they would like to come on the show and talk about it. How do you choose who you're going to feature? I had a few interviews already in the bag before I launched, and I reached out to people who I knew or knew of who I thought would be open to sharing their stories. That was initially the criteria because I wanted to find people who are comfortable talking about this. Since I've launched, I've actually been approached by a lot of people who've come to me. So I thought this would be the most difficult part of the newsletter. It's finding people to talk to. And in fact, it's been the easiest part. People are coming to me. The way I would like for it to take shape is I think a lot about having a big diversity of voices, gender, racial, geographic, of course, but also different heart conditions, Mm, different ages. And also different levels of intervention. Some people have had really many serious medical interventions and some people really haven't. It was something that happened when they were a kid and it's fine now. And isn't that lovely? Isn't it lovely? There are some people who have only had one surgery and that's it. That's all they needed. Yeah. I love it when I have people who come on my program and they talk candidly like you have about, yeah, I had multiple procedures, some are closed heart, some are open heart. And you're perfectly fine with saying that. And I can empathize because my heart warrior has had three surgeries herself. But then it is lovely sometimes to get somebody who says, oh, yeah, I'm considered a one and done. And I think, (laughs) wow, thank goodness there are some people out there like that. And not everybody has to have so many procedures because 
it's hard psychologically, emotionally, physically. It's so hard to go through all of that. So I'm glad to hear you're looking for diversity, different types of heart defects, different experiences. I think that's really wonderful. And different ages. That's nice too, because as we know, this happens to people of all ages. And so many of you are living to be adults and even older adults, which to me is really exciting. I love having somebody on my show who's in their 50s or in their 60s. That gives me so much hope for my heart warrior. And I think the medical care is just so different. Even a difference of 10 years. I talked to someone who is 10 years younger than me and their experience is so different from mine. Oh, really? And now all these people who are living in the age of COVID And that was their first experience with dealing with the heart world. That's got to be so much harder, at least when my heart warrior and when you were having to undergo your first surgeries, both your mommy and your daddy could be there with you. And during the highest part of COVID, that wasn't necessarily so. They were only allowed to have one person be back there with them. I think that's got to be a lot harder, don't you? Yeah, yeah. Did you have both your parents with you when you had your surgery? I think it was mostly my mom. Yeah. Yes. That task usually does fall mostly to the moms, but I know that my husband was there as much as he could be. Now, it was his insurance that we use here in the States. That's really important. So he had a certain amount of time that he could take away from work, but he was afraid to take too much because we couldn't afford to lose our insurance. And Unfortunately, we were at a hospital three hours away from where we lived, so we couldn't just come after work and then make it back to work the next day. Anna Jaworski has written several books to empower the congenital heart defect, or CHD, community. These books can be found at Amazon.com or at her website, www.babyheartspress.com. Her bestseller is The Heart of a Mother, an anthology of stories written by women for women in the CHD community. Anna's other books, My Brother Needs an Operation, The Heart of a Father, and Hypoplastic Left Heart Syndrome, a handbook for parents, will help you understand that you are not alone. Visit babyheartspress.com to find out more. Heart to Heart with Anna is a presentation of Hearts Unite the Globe and is part of the Hug Podcast Network. Hearts Unite the Globe is a nonprofit organization devoted to providing resources to the congenital heart defect community to uplift, empower, and enrich the lives of our community members. If you would like access to free resources pertaining to the CHD community, please visit our website at www.congenitalheartdefects.com for information about CHD, the hospitals that treat children with CHD, summer camps for CHD survivors, and much, much more. So before the break, we were learning about the heart dialogues with Lee. And in this segment, I'm going to talk to Lee about her plans for the future. So, of course, with your great writing background and the excellent job you've done with your newsletter already, I'm wondering, do you think the heart dialogues might turn into a book? I'm certainly open to that. I'm not quite looking that far ahead right this moment, but I am thinking of the future of the newsletter. I think there's a whole bunch of essay ideas that I have that I'd like to roll out. I'm publishing every other week currently, oh, wow. but I would love to run to once a week. 
So that's the next big step. And then I think there's, yeah, I think there's other different kinds of posts that I'd like to do. I'd like to eventually include some links, roundups and recommendations. And I just made a bonus just this week with comments from readers. So I'd like to do more of that. Yeah. Next step is trying some of these different formats, getting to one for the week, and then we'll see how it goes from there. (laughs) Do you think you might end up getting a co-editor or somebody to help you? Because this is a lot of work and you have a full-time job. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I don't know. That's all something I thought about. I guess I'd have to see how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. Before we go, I know a lot of people who are listening love to write as well. I'm wondering if you have any advice for aspiring writers who were born with a congenital heart condition. Yeah, I give the same advice for anyone who wants to write. And I'm certainly not an expert. I've been doing journalism for a long time. I've been writing since I was a kid. I think there's lots of great resources out there. But yeah, I would say this sounds silly, but I think the first thing to do is actually write. Um, (laughs) It doesn't sound silly when you're a writer (laughs) because writers are the worst people about procrastinating about writing. (laughs) Yeah. And I think it's really hard if you have a job, if you have kids, if you have all the to-do lists that goes on and on. I think it's really easy to push writing off. And I think it's also easy to get intimidated and think that I have to write something that's beautiful. I have to write something that gets published. I have to write something that is a certain length or I have to spend four hours at a time doing it. And I would say none of that is true. I would just carve out 20 minutes if you can and just sit, write. Don't put any restrictions on yourself. Don't put any pressure on yourself. Just write. So writing is a big part of writing. And also, I would say read a lot. Find what you like to read. When you encounter something that you read that really moves you or that you really connect with, I'd say try and figure out why it does that. Try and pick it apart. So, yeah, reading, I think, is a big part of writing. Oh, I think so, too. And as a writer myself, I find that the first time I read a book, I'm just absorbing it. But then... Like you said, if I find that it really moves me or I really am touched and I really like it and I find my mind going back to things that I had read in that book, I'll read it the second time to do what you said, to be more analytical. But it's hard for me to analyze the very first time through because I'm so into it and I just gobble it up. I think that's excellent advice. And you're right. And that advice would be perfect for somebody, whether they have a cardiac condition or not. It's for anybody who wants to be a writer. I think it's brave of you to move to the United States after living in Canada as a child. Moving to a different country, especially one where the healthcare situation is so radically different from the one that you grew up with, it's got to be a little bit scary. So what advice would you give to other adults who are born with cardiac conditions who want to experience living in a different country. Yeah, I think ironically, actually moving to New York was much less scary than a couple of the moves I'd had before that. So when I moved to New York, first of all, it's very close to Toronto. It's a very quick flight. My mom lived in Massachusetts at the time, so I was actually moving closer to her. And 
I had gone to university in Vancouver, Canada, which is way on the West Coast, which is a five-hour flight across multiple time zones. So New York was actually closer and easier to be in touch with my family. And then immediately before I moved to New York, I did a four-month packing trip solo through India. And through so, India. Yeah. Wow. I was not no. expecting you to say India. Okay. <laughs> what drove you to go to India? Backpacking across India. Wow. Yeah. So I think my mom was like, okay, I can deal with New York. But there's like a couple things that I want to talk about with my cardiac care and some of these travels. I think before I went, I talked to my cardiologist. I cleared it with him. I had his contact information. He knew I was going. So that was a big part of it. Good. All of that's really smart. Yeah. And then I think the other thing was that I've always had this feeling that at some point it might get to a situation where I can't do things like that. I don't know Mm -hmm. where my health is going to go. And the reality is that everyone has that. I was just going to say, my husband and I are entering our 60s. I'll be 60 this year. And we've been saying, okay, where do we really want to go that we know we have to be in good enough health to do it, that we need to do it now before we get into our 70s? It will be a lot harder. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that people who were born with these complex conditions, both for good and for ill, have a real sense that our lives are finite and our health is finite. Yeah. And so for me, it was more important, even if something did happen, that I got the opportunity to backpack through India and I got the opportunity to go to grad school and study journalism in New York City. These things have changed my life. And I know that there was some risk involved, but for me, it was worth the risk. I'm so impressed that you look at it that way. And I think that's the perfect way anybody should look at their lives. And honestly, Lee, I think when I was granted hope as my child, that God gave me hope and a mission. And that mission was to help other families like mine. But I think I also got a tremendous gift. And that gift was the knowledge that tomorrow isn't guaranteed. And that I needed to appreciate every day. And I already did because I was one of those people who had a really hard time getting pregnant. So it took me five years before I had my first child. And three of those years were fraught with a lot of concern. What was wrong with me that I couldn't get pregnant? I think maybe it was God's plan for me to wait for a while. And I think I needed the maturity that comes with being a little bit older to navigate the complexities of having a child with special needs. My first child, luckily, didn't. He is his own special character. (laughs) He taught me about how to be a mother to a very challenging child, but not medically challenging. And then when I had hope, being 31 was a good thing because I knew how to do research. I knew how to be an advocate for my child. I did have some of that extra wisdom that comes from being a little bit older. And I'm glad I wasn't 20 or 21 when I had a child like that. I think it would have been tremendously more difficult. But just learning how precious each and every day is and not taking things for granted and saying to yourself, okay, 
this is an experience I would like to have. It comes with some risk. Let me minimize that risk. You called your cardiologist. You did your research. You knew where you could go for help if you needed to. That's just brilliant. I wish everybody would do something like that because every trip that you take comes with some risk, whether you have a medical condition or not. And it just makes sense to know where can I go, especially if you're going in a place where you don't speak the language. And the thing about India is, what are there, 42 different states and just as many languages? Yeah, it helps that English is an official language. But yeah, absolutely. Every state is very different and different languages. Yep. Now, did you have a friend in India or had you read something or seen something that made you decide this is where I want to go? Yeah, I think I had just always been interested in the culture and the food. So in Canada, when I was born, there were these things called baby bonuses where the government would give you like a few hundred dollars for every baby that you had. And my dad just put it in like a high interest savings account until I was 21. And so I graduated from university and had a few thousand dollars in this account. And I knew I wanted to take some time off before grad school. And I'd always wanted to go to India. So I was like, all right, this is what I'm using the money for. I'm going to go. Wow. And I spent the first month in a rural development project north of Delhi. So I met people as part of that project. And part of the time I traveled with some of them, we crisscrossed paths. Part of the time I was alone. Part of the time I met other people on my travels. But yeah, there was a whole community of backpackers. So it didn't feel totally alone, but I did not fly with a friend or plan the trip with a friend. Wow. And how did your mom feel when you said, hey, mom, I'm going to go to India for, I don't know, how long did you say you did that? A couple months? Like four and a half months. Yeah. That's a long time. <laughs> how did your mom react? I think in her heart of hearts, she was probably really freaked out, but I think she also knew that I was going to do it anyway. And I think she knew that it would enrich my life, which it did. Hope wanted to do an internship in Germany, and I felt by the time she was of the age to do that, which was also when she was in college, I felt if there was anyone who deserved to spread her wings of fly, it was Hope after everything she had been through, and we did the same thing. We found out about the doctors, and she actually went and stayed with some friends of mine who the mother and father were her parents. So I knew that they knew the doctors, they knew the hospital, it wouldn't freak them out, they knew the lingo. So that made me feel a little bit more comfortable. But I had a lot of my friends who had perfectly heart-healthy children say to me, how can you let her go all the way to Germany without you? And I said, no, she can do this. When the kids were young, we did a lot of traveling. So I knew she knew how to negotiate being in an airport and she had been on every kind of public transportation you can imagine, including gondolas in Italy. So I knew she would be able to figure it out. Like you said, I think it was an enriching experience for her. And by the time you're in college, you don't want your parents tagging along. You want to spread your wings and oh, good for yeah, you. Yeah. Yeah. And I think my family was the same way. We traveled a lot. My older sister lived in Singapore for a few years and in San oh, Francisco. My mom had moved to Massachusetts. I did school about as far away as you can get in Canada. So yeah. there was some precedent for it. 
Wow. This has been so much fun. I had no idea we were going to go there about travel. I love to travel, but I have never been to India. It's too bad that you don't work in a job where you get to travel and write. Have you ever considered getting a job as a travel writer? Not as a travel writer. I have had a job before where I did get to travel from time to time for work. So yeah, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, I have thoroughly enjoy getting to know you a little better and getting to know about the heart dialogues. Let's tell everybody how they can find it and then I'll include it in the show notes too, Lee. Great. Yeah. So you can sign up at theheartdialogues.substack.com and it's free. It comes every other week. And again, theheartdialogues.substack.com. So the heart dialogues. Easy to subscribe. You go to the page, box pops up super easy and you'll get all kinds of wonderful content. It's totally worth it. I completely endorse it. And I'm hoping that you'll want to be part of the Hug Podcast Network. We have a media channel and we don't have any newsletters up there. So I would love to feature your newsletter on our media channel. Oh yeah, sure. Then people can go from my page to your page and can get your beautiful newsletter. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Lee. This was fun. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it, and this was really fun. Friends, that does conclude this episode of Heart to Heart with Anna. Thanks for listening today. Hope you found this program helpful. If you have any questions about the show, please feel free to send them to me at the HUG website. That's heartsunitetheglobe.org or at Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. I'm sorry, it's really long to spell, so it's easier to go to the website. But I'll put the links in the show notes in case any of you are on your bike or in your car. You don't have to worry about grabbing a pen. The link to the Heart Dialogues and to my website will be in the show notes. Have a great day, my friends. And remember, you are not alone. Thank you again for joining us this week. We hope you have become inspired and empowered to become an advocate for the congenital heart community. Heart to Heart with Anna with your host, Anna Jaworski, can be heard at any time, wherever you get your podcasts. A new episode is released every Tuesday from noon Eastern time.